0: Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. and today's episode of CISO Tradecraft, we're going to talk about what successful CISOs put into their board decks. I've got a special guest with me whom I'm going to introduce in a moment. But first, I'd like to offer a word from our sponsor. Being able to clearly articulate your vision for your security program to the board and other executives within your firm is critical to obtaining the buy-in you need for your program success risk 360 has created a presentation template that helps you structure your thoughts while telling a compelling story about where you want your security program to go download it today for free at risk360.com slant resources that's r-i-s-k-3-s-i-x-t-y.com well back to our show and i'd like to briefly introduce demetrios lazarikos welcome to the show
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for including me in this discussion. Very timely,
0: okay. by the way. Yeah, I think it is. And I'm glad to have you. And as we said in the pre-show, let me just call you Laz. How's that? That's yeah, easier. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, sounds good. Well, hey, before we get going a little bit, because we've got a lot of content here, we want to make sure that we provide the sources for that. So to give credit where credit's due, note that we have some of this information comes from the RSA Conference Executive Security Action Forum, the National Association of Corporate Directors, and Blue Lava's board reporting. And we'll put links to all of those resources in the show notes for you. Now, the RSA document highlights that while each CISO has a unique presentation that they share with their executives... They're common themes across most decks. And RSA looked at eight anonymous CISO decks and noticed that the following five themes were included in each presentation. Number one, changes to the risk landscape. Number two, highlighting priority risks. Number three, providing an overall cyber maturity score. Number four, showing progress on security initiatives. And number five, identification of any security incidents. Now, I can't expect you to remember that on the first go-around, so let's go into a little bit more detail and explain why those are important. Now, if we take a look at the first item, changes to the risk landscape, what we need to be able to do is show the board and other executives that the organization has an effective process to oversee cyber risks. When risks are identified, they'll be addressed and prioritized in a way that Gartner calls care, consistent, adequate, reasonable, and effective. For example, you might highlight new threats that are emerging. We see examples of this as businesses consider the consequences of intellectual property being sent outside the company to, things like ChatGPT. And we could also see generative AI making it significantly easier to imitate someone else's voice or video, or maybe even yours. And this could make it far easier for bad actors to send voicemails that impersonate a boss asking for a transfer of money or an approval for an invoice. And we see regulators such as the New York Department of Financial Services or the SEC signaling that future cybersecurity laws will be much more stringent. And once we identify new and emerging risks, we need to analyze and prioritize them. Now, by prioritizing risks, we get a better understanding of where material harm to the business is likely to occur. Now, Blue Lava's blog highlights five material risks. Their article says about data breaches, high-risk vendors, ransomware, malware, and unauthorized access. Now, these items should be familiar to most CISOs. However, the key when highlighting risks isn't to highlight the risk. Now, I know that sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but the key when you're highlighting risk is to show the progress that your cyber organization has made to lower the risk. For example, highlighting the steps that your organization has taken to decrease the likelihood of ransomware occurring in your organization is a helpful talking point that will resonate well with executives. And one way you may show this is to create a simple risk matrix that shows likelihood and impact of material risks. You might show a point on the matrix that said the inherent risk of a data breach has both a high likelihood and a high impact. Then show another point in the matrix that reflects that the residual risk of a data breach is medium likelihood but high impact. You then show an arrow going from the inherent risk to the residual risk to show that you're only decreasing the likelihood through specific actions that are being taken across your company. And this visualizes risk reduction to help executives better understand what your team is doing. Now the third thing that we see in Bordex is providing a cyber maturity score. A lot of organizations will baseline themselves against the NIST cybersecurity framework, the CSF as we call it. They may measure the NIST cybersecurity framework five functional areas: identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover and then provide values on a one-to-five scale for each of those five areas. And this will commonly be done by an external auditor. For example, a big four accounting company might say that they've assessed company XYZ and found their ability to meet the identified NIST Special Pub 853 identify safeguards is 2.3 out of 5. Now, note this number is higher than the previous year, which was a 2.1. Still doesn't sound too good coming out of 5, but then you find out that this score map's favorably to the healthcare sector as a whole, which has a current score of 2.0. And thus, executives could understand that the company is getting better, that as you've gone from 2.1 to a 2.3, you're compliant with standard practice, and you're better than the industry average of 2.0. And so these types of executive highlights allow the board to understand that there's still risk because the company isn't a perfect five, but they also allow the organization to see that they're trending in the right direction. Just an editorial note, that previous example was fictitious, so don't try to use that in your real reports, especially if you're feeding this into a generative AI. Now, remember the big takeaway from showing a maturity score is it should be externally validated on an annual basis, and that way, if an unfortunate incident does occur, you've got a little bit of CYA going on. You can respond by saying, well, yes, we did suffer a breach, and it's truly unfortunate, but we've met all of our legal requirements. We've surpassed industry benchmarks and we continue to improve our current capabilities in cybersecurity. and here's evidence from a third party that shows we were doing the best we could with the current resource constraints we were given now that doesn't necessarily get you off the hook but we're finding these days that with breaches there's almost a concept of breach fatigue and if you've done everything that's reasonably possible to protect your organization and you've compliant and you've been audited and proven to be in compliance and you're above the average, and then something like a zero day hits, it really reduces your risk of some law firm or somebody trying to sue you saying, well, you are not taking good care of the resources of our customers, your shareholders, your data, et cetera. Stuff happens, we know that. It's not a matter of if, but when, but being able to build up that resilience goes a long, long way toward reducing the risk for your organization. Now, step four will show progress on security initiatives. And here you want to focus on the progress of how you're helping the business of revenue protection. You might have heard that before. Cybersecurity is a business of revenue protection. Now, here's a couple examples of slides that you could use. The first one could be a simple Gantt chart. Remember those little project planning there where you list 10 to 15 activities that your organization is implementing. Over the next two to three years, and you show the status of when a major program starts and when it finishes and the dependencies. And you can highlight recent accomplishments of projects that were closed out over the last quarter. You can also forecast potential delays that are coming up and keep the business owners informed. And this is particularly relevant with customer security examples. Let's say you're adding multi-factor authentication to your customer-facing website. And cyber doesn't own the relationship with the customers. That's the sales organization. But if you forecast a two-month delay, then helping the sales organization plan the appropriate timing to update the customers is key. Because in addition to a Gantt chart, another helpful view would be a simple spreadsheet that shows new capabilities being delivered. Imagine we've got three columns. The first column is a focus area showing things like phishing defenses, customer security, or product security. The second column shows what things looked like last year. The third column shows what things are looking like this year this before and after is going to allow executives to see the clear deliverables that detail how you have improved security on multiple fronts now here's a pro tip try reusing that same chart with your boss at the end of the year when you're in your year-end performance reviews and you're demonstrating your value to the organization the fifth and final step is the identification of any security incidents Having a slide that shows incidents or significant vulnerabilities would put the organization at risk is helpful for informing directors about the inherent risk of the company. Now, breaches are also becoming a regulatory focus. The SEC requires that breaches be reported within three days after they're first identified. So keep your executive leaders informed of things that may have to be reported to the SEC, which could result in having to make formal statements that could maybe even affect the stock price. And additionally, it's helpful to list related third parties and vendors that may have suffered a cyber attack, particularly a large one. For example, saying that your company currently shares its customers PII with 200 external companies. Well, that's a lot, but that's an important insight. But we find out there's a lot of this interdependency that takes place. And you could continue. Of the 200 external companies, we notice that two of them reported data breaches over the last six months. Oh, Now, note that while these two events didn't result and the loss of any of our customer data, were that to have occurred, the news headlines might have a negative impact on a company's brand and reputation. Remember, you can outsource a lot of things, but you can't outsource the risk. Another helpful example is a simple metric on reporting phishing and phishes. We were seeing a trend where most organizations have a report phishing button in Outlook. Let's say your organization recorded it was clicked a thousand times in the last quarter. Those thousand phishes that were reported upon investigation The Cyber Incident Response Team confirmed that 500 of them were real phishing attacks. Now, this isn't a fear metric. We're not into FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This is evidence of how often folks are being attacked each day in their email inbox. It also shows just how much security awareness training is making a difference by creating a cyber-vigilant organization that can report security incidents. Now, after my big, long monologue, we'd love to bring our special guest onto the show, and I'd like to, again, welcome Laz. Come on and, and welcome to CISO Tradecraft.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, this is I think that's a great overview. I think it's also much needed. I, I don't know how to best explain it or you know my reaction, but I wish I had this podcast when I was a CISO. That's probably the best way I can describe it.
0: Yeah, and so well, tell us a little bit about your background. You got a rather fascinating background, but' I'll let you, I'll let you say it because you, you probably know it better than I do.
1: No, yeah, I know, I appreciate it. I, I have been on a computer since I was 12 years old. And, you know, I, I usually get asked what that was. I was on a Commodore VIC-20 as a 12-year-old. And I, I worked on programming and security up until I was about 16, and then I was recruited by the Air Force at 17. Post-military, I spent some time at EDS, Electronic Data Systems, Silicon Graphics. I had my own consulting practice, and then I became a CISO three times. I saw a unique problem in the industry several years ago, and that was the you know the essence for building out cybersecurity program management with the Blue Lava platform. Took that on and then also, you know, through the process over the years, have become an adjunct professor teaching
0: the next generation of students about business alignment with cybersecurity program management. Well, wonderful. Well, thanks for that, and thanks for all that you're doing. Now, We've been thinking and talking about what boards of directors are likely to ask CISOs about their cyber strategy, and we thought we'd bring you by, because of your background and some of your current experience, to discuss some of those important topics. So how are we measuring the threat environment, and really how prepared are we to meet it? Well, I think before I answer that question,
1: I want to share just a quick topic. When we go to board level reporting, one of the things that i found, and this is my own experience, my peers, our, our community, and you know what we're hearing from customers, I have a board level presentation. And in that board meeting, I get 15 minutes of time, maybe twice a year or four times a year. And when I go to that meeting, it's everything you just said in the introduction, but I've got to be able to talk about the shifts and dynamics of what's going on in the industry. So what I mean by that is, is if, if I go in there and now I'll answer your question and I'll walk through the, the thinking of it, if I'm going to measure the threat to my environment, I think a lot of it's going to depend. It's going to depend on, you know, is it a publicly traded company? Is it a privately held company? You know, what role do I play with a public or privately held company? And what's also different is the industry I'm in and what's the motivation of bad actors. Because like you mentioned, we're going to see these threats. We're going to see these bad actors doing you know, malicious things over time. And when we go in there and talk about the threat in our environment, it depends on publicly traded company, privately held company, what I'm doing by industry, what are our peers doing, And then how do I take this information by risk and where the biggest risk to revenue is as I'm demonstrating what I'm doing with our organization?
0: Hmm. Well, that makes sense. And so let's think about that so we can measure the threat environment. It's going to be a variable factor because not every organization is facing the same set of threats. Sometimes you don't know who's coming after you. Sometimes you do. But you can accumulate information, as you say, as a large publicly traded company. You might even attract the interest of nation state actors. Probably not so much if you're a small, small business. But hey, you never know. They got to train somewhere. But another thought is the concept of a cyber risk profile. When we talk about that term, what are we referring to about cyber risk? Profile? Yeah, so, yeah, so for
1: cyber risk profiling, I like to think about this as the entire cyber footprint of the company. So when I look at what my ecosystem looks like as a company, I think about all these things that are bubbling up and uh, attaching to our ecosystem, and that includes third party, that includes fourth party organizations, and understanding what we look like with everything that's attached to our system. I need to be able to talk with confidence what my program is doing to protect the entire ecosystem, and be able to talk about what the biggest risk to revenue is in that
0: cyber risk profile. And I like that because, again, we're back to the business of revenue protection, which is sort of a theme that we're hearing from time to time. Now, if an organization or a company in particular is considering that we have to prepare in the future, and particularly for, for preparing for potential cyber threats or incidents, are there any particular techniques or activities that you have found have been more effective than others for helping organizations be better prepared? Well, I'm a big believer in
1: threat and incident data. So whatever I can do as a CISO to invest in tools, technologies, services, to understand where those threats are, threat intelligence feeds, anything I can do to have that early warning detection up front I am a big supporter of that. And I encourage our CISO community to think about how to get that information, acquire it, and then start using it across our environment. That's part one. Part two is I also like to have you know, exercises for incident response. And, and, and I think, you know, when I look at what's happening, you know, to my ecosystem with the cyber risk profile, like we talked about, one of the areas I want to be able to do is look at how to best protect the environment by going through tabletop exercises and proactive planning if you will to see what's going to happen another theme that i've seen is organizations will put companies on retainer just so they have access to subject matter experts in case there's a breach where i could just pick up the bat phone talk to somebody have them on site in a matter of hours and you know, tie everything together from the threat feeds, the data analysis, understanding the risk, the risk profile, and then having a subject matter expert
0: when things go bad available quickly. So that's some good preparation, of course, having good data and starting to collect that before an incident occurs is rather important. You can't just kind of go in cold and realize that, hey, we didn't have any logs turned on, but we got hit, so maybe we should turn things on. And you also mentioned the concept of doing the tabletop exercises, which I particularly like. And I I write and run those for my clients as well. And it's a good way to put people through the paces. And if they're properly constructed, they'll engage executives as well. They'll have to make business decisions as part of the tabletop exercise, not necessarily just the technical decisions, because both teams will need to go ahead and practice that. Now, one of the things we find out when we're trying to protect, whether it's protecting for revenue protection or for just being able to keep the business operations going, is to identify critical assets and systems that need to be protected. Well, what's a good way to identify, if you will, the most critical assets and systems so that one could prioritize these emergency response as well as recovery actions? So I like
1: the way that you approached this with one of your responses just now. The fact that you said tie this to the business. For me, as an executive, if I'm, if I'm the CISO driving this discussion with our company, what I need to do is I need to understand revenue impact, the critical system. What's, what's the system that's tied to the highest revenue generating function of my business? Is it by geography? Is it by business unit? Is it by product line? Understanding where, and and that may be, you know, three separate units or three separate functions. I need to understand revenue generation, what that system looks like, back to our comment earlier about cyber risk profile, and then start tying it together with what's happening with my program. And why I do this, because I want to understand who is doing what, on any of those systems, right? So I always think about who, what, where, when, why, and how accessing those systems and using and leveraging things, tools, technology, people across protection of those systems. The biggest, the biggest challenge. I, I mean, I've personally been faced with is identifying critical assets has always been something difficult for me as a practitioner because some teams may go and spin up something that I don't have visibility into, but including the business as part of our framework here for bringing them along and educating them and what we're doing has always helped me win. It's difficult to do, but you have to be open. And my, you know, this is my experience. You know, I'm not trying to be prescriptive, but being open and flexible and being able to sit down and talk to business leaders about, what the strategy is and understanding those key elements of business, business growth, and what's tied to revenue helps me as a leader prepare for what could go wrong
0: with any of those systems. And that's good insight because really what you're talking about is alignment. We want to make sure that our actions that we take as a CISO or in the IT leadership, IT security leadership roles, reflect the business priorities so that we don't spend all of our time and energy protecting the trash, for example, because the business has said, hey, we're We're discontinuing that product line. And it might be your favorite cool product line, but there's like, yeah, it doesn't have a future. And if you spend an awful lot of your resources protecting something that's going to be thrown away, then that's kind of a waste. You also kind of mentioned in passing the concept of shadow IT, where we might create our own unforced errors by creating exposures and vulnerabilities that didn't exist that we had already thought about not doing these things. But somebody who has access to our corporate credit card and AWS account And an expense account that allows them to put down $74.99 taxi rides without a receipt is sometimes an invitation to problems. And so part of that's cultural as well in creating an environment where you just encourage people not to do that. But if we go back and focus on the external for a moment and things such as that, we're talking about threats and the importance of being able to have threat intelligence and other things. But what are some of the ways that we can identify What are the opponents actually up to? Are there any particular resources that you like? Are there tools or techniques or websites that you have found that have been very helpful in trying to figure out both identifying what the threats are and then making actions to start to mitigate them?
1: Absolutely. So I am a big fan of OSINT, and I'm also a big fan of CCERT.global. So any tools or technologies I could put under the OSINT umbrella. And then, you know, the, the organization I just mentioned CERT.Global and they have an international footprint based out of the, the Netherlands, they have some pretty interesting things they're doing as part of a joint partnership with the industry. We also have a great relationship. This is work that's been done with by AWord, who's driving this to make sure that we understand what's happening globally with threat data. And Award's work with you know threat intel strategy alignment. I like, I like the fact that you're you're aligning that to the business. Award's work in that area with c cert.global has helped so many, so many companies, so many countries understand what is happening with threats. And that, you know, OSINT, you know, and I'm thinking about, you know, like if I'm on a fixed budget and I don't have that giant checkbook, where do I go to start? that's why I start thinking about the tools and the technologies that may be out there. Miter attack framework, you know, you know, big fan of sticks taxi using these, these different tools that I'm mentioning that are out there to help me understand what's happening with, you know, threat Intel and then building out threat models for my organization. I think it's critical that we, we have some time dedicated or a resource dedicated to understand those components. And I think, the work here in Threat Intel has evolved over the years. And I think it's it's nice to see how it's evolved from you know, a very manual process now to automation and tying it to user behavior analytics, where we can actually think about systemic risk, where the system or the system of systems needs to be protected and how these threats are going to be or potentially be used against my environment, my business partner's environment, or my customers' environments.
0: Yeah, so we have that external model, so we can use things. And I like MITRE ATT&CK, and it's a great way to go ahead and catalog, if you will, potential tactics and techniques that might be used against you. And as we look through all these different resources, but you'd mentioned profiling user behavior as kind of almost as a segue to going not just externally, but internally as well. So what should organizations then do against, for example, an internal or an insider threat? Would that be any different? Because you can't really go ahead and come up with a a miter attack framework for the insider, I don't think.
1: Well, I, I like to think that people have good intentions. And sometimes you have good intentions, but bad behavior. And that could be I typed in the wrong password or I typed in a wrong command and, you know, something spins out of control. So that's one aspect. I like tying it back to user behavior analytics because if if Laz is logging onto the system every morning at 8 a.m. and he's allowed to look at, you know, the security dashboard or an environment, that's one type of behavior. But if Laz is using... You know, that IP address or that ID and password to try and log into a finance system at 2 a.m., well, that's bad behavior. Now, it could be that Laz is a bad person, but I don't think he is. Something else happened here. So what do I need to do? And that's why I like being like, you know, in the, in the intro when we started talking, you started building out your matrix. I like to build my matrix and say, you know, good intention, bad behavior bad intention bad behavior and then you know you know when people leave an organization you know if there's right sizing if there's a riff if there's something else going on you know these are areas where we start to see the insider threats starting to increase and the bad behavior you know happening i like to think about it in that aspect you know good intention bad intention and then also tie that to access management user behavior analytics and then you know it's critical to have the logging for those as well.
0: Yeah, and I think intentions are a big deal. You're right that sometimes no, nobody bats a thousand, and occasionally people do you know, dumb things, but not necessarily for being malicious or anything else like that. They just weren't thinking. They're in a hurry. They get careless and stuff like that. Although those are where our controls help out as well to make sure that things don't kind of go sideways in the event that somebody makes a mistake. But the more malicious stuff and things like that, the more aggressive attacks. Those are the ones that often cause a lot more damage, and a lot of controls that we can put in place can help identify that, potentially slow down or even stop that. But that becomes an incident, and then like everything else, we have to think about our incident response plan, and not just for insider threat, but for almost any incident. When we get into our incident response plan, or IRP, how how should one build one if you don't have one? And then more precisely, how often do you test it, and do you actually go through and actually back things up and move them around and light off the diesel generator, et cetera? Or do you just sit around the table, said, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Okay, everybody said they're going to do the right thing. And then later you find out in a real incident that there was no fuel in the diesel generator because nobody ever bothered to look. So how do we do these IRPs and do them correctly? Well, I found incredible success with pre-existing templates that
1: are out there. NIST, IANs, SANs have wonderful templates where I can get started for incident response plans. So I usually start there. That's part one. Part two is sitting down and having an open and honest discussion with leadership. As an executive, I have to be able to say, you know, what's on my mind about incident response. So back to business alignment, biggest risk to revenue, start talking to the team and breaking down the different components that need to be in the incident response plan. Because the incident response plan has to be a carefully crafted set of processes to follow when things go bad. And the successful CISO have these discussions. They also not only document them, but sit around the table talking to the executive, talking to the board about when things go bad, We need to run through this process and then assigning accountability to the stakeholder for support. Part one. Part two, have to go through the tests. And it's not just basically going through and saying, do we have the generator? Do we have the gas in the generator? It's actually going through and saying, I opened the gas tank. There's gas in the generator. I actually called the CEO at home because... It's 2 a.m. and we're going through our tabletop exercise, and we all know that bad things don't just happen between 8 and 5 or you know normal business hours. I have to have that flexibility and I have to have that latitude to be able to have that discussion and pick up the phone as we go through the incident response plan.
0: Well, that makes very good sense. And I think, again, testing it at least on an annual basis is probably a good way to go about that, just to make sure that we don't have dead ends or phone numbers that don't work anymore, or systems that we thought were there, but aren't, or more importantly, things that need to be protected that weren't part of last year's plan. We need to go ahead and take
1: all this information. No, I was just going to say, we have to, you know, you you hit on it. I don't want to just test it from last year. Last year, I may have a scenario, but I also have to have multiple scenarios. And the the incident, when it happens, it's not going to just be security that's called up at 2 a.m. or the CEO. We have to include others like, you know, the PR, marketing, legal, communications team, engineering. Everybody's going to have, a, have a, a presence and accountability with this incident response plan. And yes, minimum test annually.
0: Yeah, and I think it was a very good point that you made that sometimes we get a little bit of tunnel vision thinking that when we have an IT incident test, oh, it's just our IT or IT security folks. No, it's got to be PR have to deal with the public relations, legal, very, very important as well, as well as coming up with communications, letting other employees know what's going on, et cetera. And all those are often outside of the normal domain of the IT security folks. And they just don't think about that. But as leaders, we need to think about that from a business perspective. And ultimately, at the highest level of leadership, we have in organizations, the board of directors. And as a board of directors, they need to be kept informed. Now, you said earlier that you get maybe five minutes or so whatever for a presentation to the board a couple times a year. But in general, if someone gets invited to go ahead and brief the board, how should we keep them informed about cybersecurity incidents and risks?
1: So what I found to work for the board, if I go back to what I mentioned earlier, is it a publicly traded company or is it a privately held company? I think boards are starting to understand that cyber risk is a function that they need to understand. But sometimes they may not understand it or they may not have the expertise at the board level. So what I, try to, what I try to do is talk to my peers about educating the board. And that could be you know through training. The Digital Directors Network or the NACD has amazing training right now for preparing the board for understanding cyber incidents, risk, and understanding what that landscape looks like. The other thing is that we as security leaders are now starting to see regulations coming that are going to mandate board level reporting. You know, the SEC, the FTC, the state of New York, anything that's happening with risk and my risk profile, my risk appetite, my risk tolerance and what I'm doing time over time is going to be mandated. And I, as a board member, and I, as a CISO, have to be ready to talk about that. And so the board is hearing it from their peers, they're hearing it from their network group, and they're hearing it from groups like the Digital Directors Network and also the NACD through their their training. And I think when we talk about preparing the board for these, these topics, they are more open today than they have been over
0: the past N number of years. And that's a very good point because cyber is becoming more and more of an agenda item for the board and we no longer have to hope that we can get a chance to address it. It's more of a hope that we don't have to talk to them too frequently because that would mean that things aren't going well. But we don't have a static type of environment out there. It's not like, hey, we're monitoring the level of something and it looks consistent year in and year out. There's new and emerging cyber threats. And as an organization, we need to find ways to look for that and then respond to that. Any thoughts in terms of how do we keep track of what's the latest challenge coming around the corner?
1: Yeah, so staying on top of, now go back to threat intel, seeing what bad actors could be talking about. Also working very closely with vendors. You know, security vendors have so much information from all of their customers that they can talk knowledgeably about what they're seeing and what they're experiencing for different trends. I know that as a CISO, I also have access to private Slack channels, forums, emails, different communities like the Blue Lava community, where I can actually have an open and honest conversation about what I'm seeing or leverage what I'm sharing as part of my data, data collection and analyzing it through the process. I also think that the ISAC families, you know, FSISAC and the other ISAC groups are incredibly helpful for understanding what's happening from a threat landscape training. We also mentioned the MITRE ATT&CK framework earlier. That coupled with B-sides, local chapters for OWASP, ISSA, ISACA, these groups have been wonderful in gathering this information and getting it out there as fast as possible, so I mentioned you know, the threat intel feeds. I also mentioned looking at the Slack channels, the emails, the private forums, the private communities, and leveraging any of the ISACs and also the regional groups. Those are critical.
0: And those are some excellent resources. And we find out then as we can inform ourselves about the threats. We can inform ourselves about emerging threats. We're able to go ahead and build defenses. We structure them. We can use different types of control sets. We've got techniques for briefing the board and a periodicity for it. But one of the things that tends to fall outside of things that we can control is what happens when we have risk that we want to assign. That is to say, essentially purchase insurance. With risk, you can accept the risk, you can avoid the risk and just not do it. And you can mitigate the risk by going ahead and putting in controls. But of course, the additional option then is, well, let's go ahead and let someone else take on the risk. And insurance companies will say, hey, for a certain premium, We'll live with the variability that comes out of there. Well, what type of cyber insurance coverage makes sense today? And how do organizations approach cyber? I know that these days, every time we work with a client and they've got to complete a insurance renewal, it's just a longer and a longer and a longer form, as if to say the insurance companies are realizing that the risk is not monolithic anymore. It's very, very detailed. And ultimately, as I caution everybody, remember that, uh, insurance may only provide for the orderly demise of your business. They'll pay off your electric bill and your salaries and the the water while your customers go someplace else because you can't deliver services for months. So talk a little bit about insurance, if you would, please.
1: I like to think about insurance as the, it's, it's a necessary, cyber liability insurance is a necessary component of running your business in 2023. Personally, I've been working in this with customers for over two decades and as you mentioned that form or that questionnaire has started to grow you know it's been exponential over the past two decades but i think what it's done is it 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 has started to focus on areas that are almost top of mind for every company that's been out there And, and specifically over the past three years we've seen a lot of questions that focus on ransomware or bcp and dr for companies as they're writing a policy, but things to keep in mind about policies, a good policy is, in my opinion, is going to look at how holistic is my program, not just focusing on a specific event that may be in the news. How holistic is my program? Secondly, it's going to look at what's the best way for me to be involved in the decision-making process to pre-qualify for cyber liability insurance. We're looking for first-party coverage, third-party coverage, and in some cases, fourth party, when a third party is working with somebody else and brings them into your system of systems like we talked about earlier. I also think that we have to remind ourselves when we're sitting down with the CFO or the COO or the CEO and that broker to, to help them understand what's happening with coverage is that limits for cyber liability insurance have a cap and Cyber liability insurance costs are going up. And we have to keep those two things in mind when we're sitting down with, you know, our peers and our executive team
0: to help educate them. And you'd mentioned third party and even fourth party risk. And so if we time to look at what can we learn, we can certainly query our third parties. We can go to them and say, hey, you're a service provider. Could you please give us this feedback or use some sort of form or, or questionnaire or the like? But is it reasonable to be able to monitor your third-party vendors and suppliers for cybersecurity risks?
1: I believe so. There are tools out there now that allow us to look at third-party vendors specifically through questionnaires and other feedback so they can actually participate in the process of collecting data and then reporting back to me as a company. Companies like CyberGRX, WISTIC have tools and platforms in place that allow me as a CISO or me as procurement to go out and vet those third parties to make sure that they're following best practice, have a cybersecurity program, have different components in place for managing that third party risk. I think tools and the, the platforms that I mentioned there have been around for several years and already have an established footprint and I would encourage our audience of listeners to look at some of those tools and technologies, partner with procurement to involve that third party review as quickly as possible. Because we know that we're doing, you know, we're doing a lot, but I'm a big believer in partnering with the organ- in people and groups inside the organization to get my job done because security is not just, you know, one man team, one man show. Security is a
0: team sport, and we have to bring everybody along. That's a very, very good point. Now, we're getting close to the end of the show, but I got one last question I'd like to ask for you is, how can a company measure the effectiveness of their cybersecurity program?
1: Well, at the core, I have to be able to demonstrate what I'm doing with my risk, my biggest risk to revenue through a holistic lens, and I've got to be able to demonstrate that time over time. You alluded to this and mentioned it earlier. I have to be able to demonstrate what I'm doing now, what my target is, and then performance-based reporting on my security program. And if I have those things in place, whether it's maturity, coverage, another topic that gets to be a little tricky, cyber risk quantification, if I have Some of those components in place today where I build my baseline, I have it and I can demonstrate what it looks like and then report on it. Just like I would anything else I'm doing as a business with my business performance metrics, I become successful. The company understands what we're doing as practitioners, what our teams are doing and being able to talk to them, as you just stated so eloquently,
0: business alignment. And so I think in wrapping everything up here, Laz, you've given us a tremendous amount of insight in terms of looking at a whole range of ideas and topics. You know, we've, we've talked about measuring the threat environment, looking at our cyber risk profile, how to prepare for potential cyber threats or incidents, how to identify what needs to be protected, mitigating those threats, insider threats, uh, our IRPs, incident response plans, those are really important in testing them, communicating with the board Looking at emerging threats, insurance, and even going ahead and being able to provide reporting about our effectiveness in the measuring of our cybersecurity program. A lot of moving parts out there, but a lot of very, very important insight. And I think it's been incredibly valuable to listen to you and have your views in terms of how to do things to do things right, because you've been doing it for quite a while, and we've got a lot of respect for for what you created. So let me say on behalf of the community, thank you for what you've done and for your leadership, and we look forward to having continued success. And for our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in again to CISO Trade Draft, And we hope that you found this episode to be useful and informative. If you're watching us on YouTube, please click that subscribe button. It does help us in terms of being able to reach more listeners. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast channel, give us a thumbs up or a five star or whatever it is for feedback. Again, that helps raise our ratings. Not that we get anything out of it necessarily, but it does help us reach others. And that's great for our community. So we thank you for your time and your participation and being part of this. And until the next time, stay safe out there.